am at the Rethinking Macroeconomics Conference at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NISA. My name is Paola Buonadonna. I'm joined by Paul Mason, a journalist and author, who took part in the first panel of our conference today, which was asking, what are the big questions for macroeconomics? Paul, what are the big questions <laughs> for macroeconomics? Well, uh, the, the obvious one is, how did they get uh, the financial crisis wrong? But for me, uh, that then begs the question of what theory of reality is guiding macroeconomic thought? Um, because there's a lot of controversy, uh, and we'll be talking about it today, about the, the status of models. Paul Romer, the eminent American uh, economist, has attacked the economics profession, saying it's gone back 30 years as a science because of its addiction to DGSE models. Um, and today we've been having a debate about whether data and more inductive logic, more empiricism is necessary. I think more empiricism will help you, and I think we have to look at data-driven models more. But ultimately, I think what the economics profession has to ask itself is, are we modelling a permanent and static system, or are we modelling a complex and adaptive one that might have uh, a time, limit, time limitation, it might end? And therefore, should we therefore expect and, and build into our models disequilibrium uh, rather than equilibrium. That, to me, is the basic question. And it's, and it's not solved by chipping away at simply uh, who got what wrong in 2007-8. What is at stake if we don't get this right? Why does this matter? Let's bring, it, let's bring this back to the short term. Theory can't work to the timetable of politics. It, it mustn't. It must, there have been some clear policy disasters. And... What we need to do now in the economics profession and the journalist, journalism profession, which I'm part of, that, that sort of sits adjacent to it, I think is fairly radically come up with um, answers that put things right. Uh, because uh, the sequence in the 1930s did go that way. The early proto-Keynesian uh, demand management and stimulus policies of Roosevelt, of Hoover before him, and then, of course, the tragically... Uh, enacted uh, policies of the Third Reich with Hjalmar Schacht, Hitler's Keynes. Uh, policy came first and theory came second. And I, I don't know that the theories of the, of the mid to late 30s of, of J.M. Keynes would have emerged in the form they did had he not been surrounded by politicians that were determined to find practical answers at the level of policy to the Depression. I'm now joined by Samaya Keynes, a journalist from The Economist who has been one of the moderators of today's event. Um, Samaya, if you had to pick um, three areas that you think we need to look at if we're serious about this, what would they be? So I think the first big question is how can inequality help us to understand the macroeconomy better? Right? So how does the fact that we know that different groups respond differently to the same policy uh, influence how we understand how this huge, huge system works? Um, and I think that's really one of the frontiers of macroeconomic research, really drilling down into, you know, there are these households and these households and they, they, they do different things in response to, say, um, uh, much lower interest rates. The second two are kind of looming looming questions, looming huge questions. The first is how we how we deal with our demographic challenge um, as the British population ages and also generally in Europe our populations age, particularly if they're unwilling to take in migrants. Mm -hmm. How, how we deal with that in terms of the politics and also the economics. And then finally, there's this huge question of how we deal with technological progress and whether that should change how we think about the economy, but also how worried we should be about protecting people against the robots stealing their jobs. 
how that will change us as a society. You know, economists have, have carved out this niche for themselves in the public discourse as these experts, these independent experts who can pontificate um, and kind of deliver judgments on this is what you should do. The politicians are the ones who ultimately make the big decisions on economics. So there are, there are two ways you can look at it. You can say, okay, there are some things that have gone really, really wrong. The politicians, if only they'd listened more to the economists, they wouldn't have made these big mistakes. Or... Alternatively, you could look at it by saying all these econ the, these economists who thought that their kind of technocratic advice was going to have this impact, you know, they really needed to understand a bit more about the politics and understand that that actually, you know, winning votes and narratives um, that that influences policy just as much as what is the most efficient thing to do. Um, and there's this big question, you know, who needs to move towards who? You know, if the economists are right, then politicians are about to make some spectacularly bad policy mistakes. Um, and so, you know, perhaps the politicians will realise they really should have listened to the economists all along. But in the meantime, perhaps economists need to think about whether the way that they communicate their research needs to be improved and whether they need to engage a bit more in the kind of dirt of politics. I'm now joined by Doyen Farmer, Professor of Mathematics and Co-Director of Complexity Economics at Oxford. Um, uh, Doyne, you've just um, um, moderated a session asking whether computing technology can really help macroeconomics. Well, can it? We think that it could help in several ways. One way is in gathering information. Computers are fantastic at collecting data. And the methods we base economic models on in macroeconomics are of national accounting go all the way back to the middle of the 20th century. And we think it's time to update that. And because we can gather so much more data now with the internet and with social media and so on. So we think things like um, what's selling on Amazon and how much. Uh, how are people's sentiment in Twitter and Facebook? How much are people driving their cars? These kind of things can be directly measured in real time so that rather than using national accounting statistics that depend on surveys that appear a year after the fact, we can gather much finer grained information in real time. Now the other, the other way we think information technology could be useful is in taking full advantage of the computer's power to simulate the world. Um, traditional economic models are based on very stylized assumptions and they don't even come close to taxing the capacity of a modern computer. Uh, in contrast, in other parts of science, in physical science and, and natural sciences, the ability to simulate the world with a computer has really driven the progress of knowledge. We want to harness up that in economics uh, to make what are sometimes called agent-based models in order to model the world and simulate policies and see what their effect would be. By the way, they're called agent-based models and, and, uh, because any social science model will have agents in it that have to make decisions. So it is a more challenging problem in economics than, say, physics because we don't know the underlying laws and we have to deal with human decision-making. But we do think there's enough systematic regularity in human decision-making that it's nonetheless a very useful thing to do. Humans are messy. Yep, humans are messy, and that makes it a harder problem. I'm here with David Tuckett, Director of the Center for Decision-Making Uncertainty at UCL. Um, David took part in a session called Perspectives from Psychology, Sociology and Anthropology, 
What happened in that session, David? Well, we had three speakers. Uh, we started off with uh, my colleague David Vincent from UCL, who explained a bit about the way psychologists were studying language. And very amazingly, how studying them very individually and really without looking at the meaning of words had been for many years the way of doing it and how it's now undergoing a major change so that it's become much more the study of how people interact with each other, how people make conversations, how meaning emerges from things. And then I went on to talk about more generally the way in which sociology and psychology are relevant because information, for example, tends to have to be interpreted. In many economic models, there's just information, but actually people try and make sense of things and that's, that's quite difficult. And I talk a lot about the importance of narratives and above all, the importance of emotion. Not emotion just as something which is going to mess things up, as is commonly the way it's talked about, but how emotion is, is vitally important to making decisions when there's, you're uncertain, you don't know what to do. And it is that fact only because you can feel confident and convinced about something that you do it. And that, of course, leads to a lot of research potential for studying well, what makes people confident when are they confident when is it going to lead to trouble when isn't it and so on i presented some work on how if you study the emotions that you can find for example in the digital news reuters news it seems to give you some uh, new information which enables you to forecast or predict things happening in the economy earlier but more generally i think that emotions being left out of much discourse, but we can see from something like Brexit and from the recent events in the United States that people in fact make decisions because they feel unhappy about things or happy about things and that trying to pretend that economics and the way the world works is nothing to do with emotion just isn't really common sense. So the interesting question is how on earth can we have had these academic theories about decision making and so on which pretend it's all a question of calculation. With me now is Roger Farmer, a UCLA and Warwick professor, but also recently appointed as research director here at NISA. Roger, you were a part of a session earlier today, a better way for macroeconomic policy. What is at stake if we don't find a better way? Uh, we've just been through the worst financial crisis since the 1930s. Uh, it's 10 years, getting on for 10 years uh, since the end of that crisis. And 10 years is rather a long time to go without a recession. Uh, at some point, maybe next year, maybe five years from now, uh, there will be another major financial crisis, there will be another recession, uh, and we're currently at a situation where the tools that have traditionally been used to fight recessions, in particular the, the money interest rate, are uh, close to zero. So we desperately need to find a way uh, of combating future situations uh, in, in a way that um, can help make us all better off. I, I think it's fair to say that it was a session where uh, all three of us had new and interesting ideas to put forward uh, that um, are certainly not mainstream, but I also think we're in a situation where those are precisely the kind of ideas we need. Uh, macroeconomics as we know it now, and in particular macroeconomic policy making, uh, is old, tired, uh, and needs a shot in the arm. It's the end of the day and I'm joined by Angus Armstrong, Director of Macroeconomics here at NISA and uh, one of the conference organisers. How did it go? 
Well, it's been a fantastic afternoon. We've had people from sociology, psychology, anthropology, mathematicians, physicists, and of course, economists, all trying to open up this question of how do we really look into macroeconomics and start putting it together to be once again a useful and policy relevant discipline um, of economics because really that's why it was created in the 1940s in response to the Great Depression. We've now had the Great Recession and we have to think about how do we improve macroeconomics. We think it's by making it more interdisciplinary is the way that we're going to make the really big advances. I was told uh, once we started making this conference, put it together, and we saw the response from the public, we could have sold out a 250-seater had we uh, thought ahead to book that sort of place. So there's clearly a huge demand, huge interest, and of course, in terms of public policy, getting to the bottom of this, finding some answers for the big challenges we all face in the real world, that's the crucial test.